0: That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
1: For an idea to spread, for it it to move from one mind to another, you have to be open. And the decision as to whether that steel door of skepticism slams down or opens up is therefore of huge consequence.
2: Hello and welcome to Mr. Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I've been thinking a lot lately about actually two things that led to today's conversation. One is on this podcast, I think a lot about how to find guests, right? How to find people whom maybe not only you haven't heard from, but that I haven't heard from. Um, I was actually talking to somebody, I was talking to, to, to a listener of the show, and they were asking me what are the ones I get the most out of. And absolutely, 100%, it's the ones where I come in not knowing what the person is going to say. And on the one hand, it's so much better for me to do that. On the other hand, obviously the search cost of trying to find people who I don't know, who I don't have any relationship with, whose ideas I don't know that well. Then I got to do all the prep from the beginning and forge a relationship from the beginning. And so it's easy to not do that. And so I've been thinking a lot about how to do this podcast on hard mode rather than easy mode. Something I will say that I'm so grateful for in all of you. I love the fact that on this podcast, downloads are not correlated with the fame of whoever is talking. Um, I've had, you know, the most famous people maybe maybe have a bit of a bump. But, but for the most part, um, whether somebody is known or not has no relationship that I can tell to how successful the episode is. And many of our biggest episodes are academics who I don't think most of you all have heard of before they're on the show. And I just think that's so great. So anyway, I've been thinking a lot about how to do the hard version of this podcast rather than letting myself slip into the easy version where I talk to people I already know about things I already know. That's one thing. The other is I've been thinking a lot about how in my own life and and here and for Vox and just in the world, how do we create context for how we hear conversations? You know, as a writer, I put so much work into the argument I actually put on the page or when I'm doing this podcast. I put so much work into the questions and and reading the books and and all of that. But before that work can work, before, you know, a a well-crafted argument can persuade anyone – that person has to have an open mind coming into it Um, before a conversation can be meaningful to someone. They have to want that conversation to be meaningful. Partially, if they don't want that, they're not going to come for it in the first place. But even if they do, right, even if you happen to come across an article I wrote, if you came to it already thinking, I don't like this guy, Ezra, I don't like Vox, all the evidence we have suggests that you're not going to listen. And I do this too, right? I see arguments and and I go read things and I get, you know, directed to something because somebody's mocking it somewhere. And I can feel my mind closing down. So I've been thinking a lot about about these two things. Like how do we create context around conversations and arguments such that that we can hear them? And and how do I find people so that the arguments being heard are are new and interesting? And Chris Anderson is the, the head of TED. He's the curator of TED. And so this is what he does. And he's recently launched a podcast called The TED Interview, where he interviews kind of some of the the, the main speakers of TED, the the people he's been influenced by over the years. So when the opportunity came up to interview him, I was fascinated to do it because there's something that that he's figured out, or at least something he has experience in, that that I would like to learn more about and that I hope all of you are going to enjoy learning more about too. So always my email, Show at com. Here is Chris Anderson.
1: Chris Anderson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ezra. It's great to be here.
2: I had not realized that you grew up in Pakistan.
1: Yes. um, Born in Pakistan, grew up in Pakistan, India, Afghanistan. Um, Yeah, I'm very happy I did. It's a big part of who I am, I think.
2: Your parents were medical missionaries? (laughs) They were. For whom?
1: Well, it was was for British um, Missionary Society, um, Protestant, Bible-believing. You know, he he took a mobile eye clinic uh, to different places in the Sindh Desert in Pakistan And did lots of cataract surgery. And then when people were healing, tried to give them the gospel, which you could do back then. Uh, (laughs) Much harder now. And um, you would probably call him today uh, like a fundamentalist, very much a fundamentalist Christian. Yeah. But really lived it. He lived it. He lived it. I mean, he believed that people's eternities were at stake. And so what else could you do? That was the moral thing to do.
2: I think that that space of missionary work where you really believe that if you don't go there somebody's eternity might be lost to hell when you put yourself
1: in that mindset it's like how can you not
2: it's such a different way to approach the world
1: no absolutely and uh, and that's what I grew up with that's what I believed growing up and if you if you if you combine that with being logical and wanting a coherent worldview, you have no choice but to be evangelical and to try to persuade others. Otherwise, that's the least moral thing you can, you know, you could do is to leave someone to their fate. Are you religious? You know, I would not now describe myself as religious. I would describe myself as Someone on a journey. Like, I'm, I'm very, very curious about the world. I, I left the church. It felt very dramatic at the time to me when I was 28 years old after sort of a decade of struggling to stay in it and sort of against my almost my deepest desires. I felt like I had a deep relationship with God and uh, it was a huge part of, of who I was, but I couldn't make the pieces add up. They no longer made sense to me. And so I left and it felt really, really painful but also a relief and you know trying to understand what is out there is still such an intriguing and exciting journey and you know by and large i embrace you know a scientific worldview but science is itself a, a you know a journey of discovery it's not like scientists have the complete story the story that they have changes all the time and there are huge parts of it that science really doesn't understand including arguably, uh, the most important part of all, which is who are we? What is this thing called consciousness, etc.? So I believe in a universe full of mystery, but, but not the religious narrative that I grew up with.
2: What, what led to you um, having that struggle leaving the church? I, I'm always interested in, in people's journeys in this respect. It, it, did it feel like it was the culture you were part of and the social community you were part of, or was it argument and logic and, and science you're reading?
1: I mean, did, did you leave in a kind of head or heart way? More a headway, I, th- I think. Um, you know, I was brought up to believe that, first of all, God had a plan for every moment of your life. Everything was part of his plan. And that was incredibly comforting, but also perplexing when things went wrong and when you started to see evil things happen, like, you know, a child in the family gets lost or something like that. That It's, it's incredibly hard to make that compatible with a loving, all-powerful God with a plan. It just seems like not someone you'd want to worship, honestly. Um, So there was that. There was, you know, for a long time, I mean, I read philosophy at Oxford and believed during that time that the only way you could be a moral person was to have some kind of grounding held by a divinity. Like without that, what on earth was the the basis for someone believing that they should ever do something for someone else? Why not just be selfish? Um, And I couldn't resolve that. But then In my 20s, I started to see more and more people doing amazing things for the world, despite having no religion at all. And that was in its own way a challenge. And then just the whole worldview about a God sending his son to die for everyone else's sins seemed to seem less and less plausible the more you came away from it. And the more you believed in a sort of a vast universe with countless millions of planets. And there just seemed to be a misfit between that myth, that story, and what the universe actually seemed to be. So, you know, all these things sort of gradually became just harder and harder to reconcile. And in the end, I said, I can't do it anymore. Oh, I guess one other thing helped was just seeing how many of the religious feelings that had been very important to me, like like the feeling of being in a church and singing at the top of your voice with other people, and the sort of the majesty and the sort of sense of worship that you were connecting with the divine in that moment, that that was actually replicated when you sang with lots and lots of people in, in other places, like in a concert hall or, or in a sports stadium. And so, you know, it's, it's like bit by bit, the worldview seemed less plausible.
2: I'm interested in that experiential dimension because there's the, the story of any particular religion and then there's the, the experience people have of it. You had said a minute or two ago that you felt you had this relationship with God. Do you still feel that? Did that feeling move to a relationship with mystery in the universe? Did that feeling go away? Like, how did the feeling inside change as this part of your life changed?
1: Yeah, the feeling went away. I mean, I, I let it go because if there wasn't that God there, that person there in that intense sort of very literal sense of a being who cared about your every move, you had to let it go. And it was it was more painful than, than a divorce. I mean, it was a relationship you'd had your whole life. And... You know, there was some relief with it because the um, you know there's a lot of obligation associated with that relationship, but it was um, there's definitely a sorrow to that and um, the feeling of you know going into a church and and kneeling and worshiping something much bigger than you are. I I miss that to this day, but I also still believe that. You can find a version of it by just um, losing yourself to the majesty of the universe and to, you know, like you can, you can still <laughs> lie on the ground and look up at the stars at night and go, holy cow, that is so extraordinary and trying to ponder our part in it. And you can work for things that are bigger than you are. And it turns out that psychologically, we are wired to get a lot of joy and a lot of meaning out of, out of doing that a life lived with with a sort of bigger end in view feels as purposeful as, as I think, you know, any of the religious things I did in my 20s felt.
2: Would it be way too podcast psychologist to wonder if there are symmetries in some of the aesthetics and construction of TED to
1: church and kind of communal <laughs> feelings of awe and curiosity? Uh, I mean, people have tried to say this, I... I think ultimately that analogy doesn't work. Um, Ted's not a religion. Um, I mean, maybe not for you, but I worship only at the altar of Ted. (laughs) (laughs) What I do think is that people need to think beyond themselves. Um, So, I mean, there are aspects of Ted that while not being in any way a religion, probably replace some of the things that people miss. Like they do give, you do have a chance to think about your better self. You do have a chance to be inspired by people. You have a chance to nudge other people to say, you know what, what if we did this together and and people can dream together? And so there are some things there that I think are actually very important for the human condition and that I worry that in secular culture that we are in danger of losing, that as we let go of religion slowly, we haven't thought hard enough about, you know, use the crude term, just like, like psychological hacks we are letting go, that we may deeply regret. Uh, There's a wonderful TED talk by the philosopher Alain de Botton called Atheism 2.0, where he he makes this exact point that religions may be wrong, they may not be a true description of the world, but they sure as heck figured out amazing ways for millions and millions of humans to cooperate together and to avoid some of their worst disputes among each other. And part of that might just be the simple fact of people gathering every week and using that moment to nudge themselves to remember, you know what, we, we should we should try and do the right thing. We are very, very buggy creatures. And, you know, we're in this complex, really hard to navigate world, we might need something like that to to actually survive and to avoid being horrible to each other.
2: This is so interesting to me because this gets right at something I've been um, thinking about for the past couple of days. I've been in this conversation with Andrew Sullivan, um, the, the, the writer, about religion and politics and identity, and you know one of the one of the things that I've been batting around in this is. There's a widespread view, and it's a view that, that I often hold as well, that as religion has weakened in the West, it's left a, a void of meaning that people are maybe trying to fill in different ways. And, and Andrew's view is that we're filling it with politics, which I actually don't agree with or at least don't agree with in some of the ways he put it. But I've been trying to think about how would we know if that underlying idea is true versus – Human beings throughout history are often dissatisfied, that the, the search for meaning is difficult, that finding ways to have life with meaning is difficult, and that in this era, we are giving the, the explanation there to, to the decline of religion, whereas in previous eras, as we tried to fill that, we filled it with other kinds of answers or we just felt dissatisfied. I know you've talked to Steven Pinker a lot over the years, and it sometimes is hard for me to align the sense a lot of us have that something is going quite wrong in society with the overall indicators that society that people do not seem less happy or um, less well in their being or less tribal in their in their approach to life than they did 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 200 years ago. So I guess like how, how would we know? How would we know if – Religion is what is leaving a hole in some of us, or there's just a hole in the human, the human hmm. condition is
1: to be dissatisfied quite a bit of the time. Hmm. I mean, there's definitely no way to know. Damn um, it. You, you can never do a control experiment on, on the universe, on history. You know, we, have, we have one shot at history, and you can't, unfortunately, re, replay the tape with a different start. But I mean, I think there's a lot you could do to investigate plausibility on it. And one way would be just to observe that most people for most of the last hundreds of years have lived in a religious context where they have met they have gathered regularly, and that the fact you know is it really a coincidence that religions kind of operate on this sort of weekly schedule to me, it makes a lot of sense when you when you think about how much of life is this dance between us as sort of um, you know selfish agents looking after our own self versus us as heroic cooperators trying to find the best in other people. This is clearly, you know, those are two strong elements running inside every person. And what determines the volume control on each of those might well be the extent to which we meet with each other and just remind ourselves of who we want to be. So I, I absolutely think that the people who want to throw out Religion, and I, I certainly think that religions cause lots of damage, as well as motivating many people to do wonderful things. People who want to throw it out need to pay attention to this of of how we encourage ourselves to still believe in each other, to believe in community. You know, that the, the, the arguably, and um, I don't know whether your political friends would agree with this, but arguably, one of one of the biggest dangers and tragedies of the West is that we focus so much on individual explanations for everything. You know this individual, self-interested economic agent that, that explains all of markets and democracy and so forth. You know, that's a terrible model of human nature. The East has it much clearer, I think, that, we, that, that so much of our meaning, our identity, is found in each other. And so to find language that allows communities to thrive and believe in each other, that, that feels to me hugely important. And it's almost like as this moment of crisis, can we say crisis? I think we can say crisis of democracy and capitalism. That part of the solution may well be in finding a political language, uh, a a human language of how to reinvest in the communities that are before our eyes degrading in so many parts of the West. One
2: of the things that that brings up for me is uh, when people have this conversation, they tend, I think, to run together a couple different things. One is people's desire to have meaning, and another is people's desire to have community. And of course, you can have community around a meaning, And you can have community around a lot of other things. It's We've also had a breakdown of people staying in place and being near their families. And, the, you know, there's a lot going on simultaneously. But one of the things that I always find, I always find puzzling literally about the human condition, the, about, about the way people live their lives, is I don't have a great explanation for why people atomize so much socially. Um, or have atomized so much socially, in, in America at least, as they get a bit older, given both the demonstrated and the articulated desires to have community. There seemed to me to be a lot of ways that one could try to answer the need for community, um, ranging from religious ways. But I mean, I remember the, the rise of meetup.com in the in the early aughts, and the internet was going to be this amazing way that we found people who were into crafting you know, model airplanes, and we all hung out with each other. You know, and there are often experiments in communal living, and they don't tend to last that long or spread that widely. There's something there that I've never been able to untangle to my own satisfaction. Some way in which the way we seem to live as we get richer and as we have more choice Mm. seems to be in some contradiction with both what we
1: believe about ourselves and what we say about ourselves. Mm. I think that's right. I mean, evolution would have no reason in a way to select for people who... Craved community as a choice because it was never a choice; it was a given. I mean, there was no way to survive w- without being in a community. We just were. We, we, you know, we evolved in these tribes of one hundred and fifty people or whatever the, the number is, and that's how we were. And um, and it and so you could easily imagine that as we get richer and we get more choice, that we might find ourselves choosing to throw off some of the strictures and the awkwardnesses and the annoyances and the rules and the obligations that come from community, not realizing that in so doing, we are cutting out the very thing that nurtures us. And that, is, that seems to be an entirely plausible thing that could be happening. And I think it is, it is happening, and it's something we probably need to pay attention to. Support for The Gray Area comes from Shopify.
3: Shopify.com slash box.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline, because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
2: One of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation with you is that for the past, I don't know, 10 years-ish, I've been an editor. Um, I'm a writer too, but I'm an editor. And the job of an editor is to find people with interesting ideas or interesting abilities to find ideas and and help them craft those ideas into legible fashion and ted always strikes me as a remarkable triumph of editing i believe your your actual title there is curator and i'm curious how you think about the role of curator what makes a good curator and on a day-to-day level what does the job of curator entail for
1: you Yes, at one level it's very simple. I mean, we've been looking, we are looking all the time for people who have something remarkable to say and who can say it in a compelling way. And it's it's those two things that you try and find, and that can be in any topic at this point. And one of the things that's gradually shifted over the years is that we've got more confident in helping people with the second part of that equation – You can't take someone who has nothing worth saying and put them on the stage and they could be the most charismatic person in the world and it's just a disaster and um, we're we're not interested in that. But you can take someone who has something really worth saying but doesn't know how to say it and help them find the means and, and the words. And so increasingly the focus has just been for people who are doing remarkable work or have something important to say, they've invented something, they have an idea, they have a vision, they have a passion, they have a way of articulating where the world is at, and then helping them, you know, sort of find the way to say it authentically and in, in their own unique voice. And uh, as Ted has grown, you know, it used to be just myself and Kelly Stetzel, a colleague, and that was about it, doing, doing all the curation. And uh, there's now a team of uh, 12 or 13 people focus just on that on sort of finding remarkable people in lots of different fields plus we have a website where probably 25,000 people a year apply to give a talk um, so there's there's a big field out there to explore and it's so thrilling when you find someone who has been relatively invisible and then the, the, you know you get a chance to hear them and um, everyone benefits when an idea is expressed in a compelling way that you hadn't thought of and i i get terribly excited at the the kind of the, um, the miracle that is one idea, one little buzzy little vibration pattern thing in someone's brain leaking out into other brains just because someone can open their mouth and go ba-ba-ba-ba-ba, and the little sound waves go didle into people's ears, and then somehow magically through the power of language and all these sort of weird skills of listening to public speaking, the same pattern is is recreated and it changes who those people are. And maybe 10 years later, they do something different that they wouldn't otherwise have done. I mean that whole thing is is just uh, a miracle and to to have a chance to have you know to play a little part in the middle of that is is really exciting but but take me back to when it wasn't a big thing when there weren't twenty five thousand
2: people applying. How did you find the people who you hadn't heard of? How did you find give me an example of someone of someone you found who gave a, who, who gave a remarkable talk but who wasn't known before you found them and and, and, and how that connection came to be made. Because that seems to me to be what, um, actually, frankly, the media is often bad at doing. There, there's a real tendency to just go back to the same wells of people. I think about it on this podcast. It is so it is so much easier to just go to people that I've already heard of or have already known than it is to go and find um, people that I haven't. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious how g- – give me a couple of examples of, of places where that worked well and what you learned from them. Yeah,
1: I mean people – I guess early on we would simply look at, at- – the places you might assume, you know, like other other media sources would keep our eyes out for anything happening on the internet or in a newspaper or, or magazine. And someone who just struck you as as interesting for some reason became someone who you'd want to hear more from. And uh, so I, I I won't claim that we particularly, you know, that the very best ideas we put out there, someone who plucked from complete... Obscurity, and I think about one of the early ideas that had a big impact on me. um, Barry Schwartz, you know, he was he was a known, um, you know, psychologist, and um, gave this talk about the paradox of choice, of how even though freedom is a good thing, too much freedom can turn out to potentially be a bad thing, and to give people stress instead of happiness. And it it really, you know, like, like that helped change how I organized my own life to some extent. And you know, he was out there, he was published, he was known but not known by nearly enough people, because that insight can actually help anyone. And so, you know, that's probably more often the story that happened is that people, um, you know, Sir Ken Robinson, who, who gave the most viewed talk of, of all time about creativity and education, was definitely known, he won a knighthood um, long before we ever put him on the stage. But, you know, if you Google him now, like the TED Talk is, is up there as his, that's the biggest single way that he's, he's known to millions of people. And so I think it's it's more about the, just the great serendipity of being at the right moment in time, finding an idea that is is ready to fly and, and giving it a chance to, to fly and to go out there and to reach lots more people. Is one of the things that, that you have to push against, to pick up on something you just said,
2: the sense in elite circles that somebody is already known or something is already known and the recognition that. For most people still, like uh, Barry Barry Schwartz, even probably today is not well-known, or Sir Ken Robinson, like I actually don't know that name offhand. I often find in the media, we have a very fast cycle of getting tired of things we've heard about because we are these sort of hyper-consumers. And so we've read a profile in four places before most anybody has seen it once, and most people have obviously seen it never. How do you not get jaded in that way such that you are curating to – Impress your circles,
1: as opposed to curating for a general audience. I mean, part of it is just that knowledge doesn't get less interesting over time. Like it's with many things, the more you do it, you you get acclimated, and it gets boring. You know whether that is you know, going on adventure tours or eating ice cream or whatever, like the fourth time you do that, it's not as good as the first time usually. Knowledge, I think, is different. Like the more, the more you know, the more questions you have. That's the fundamental thing. And so curiosity actually stokes itself. And so there's, I, I, I mean, there's, there's no risk of getting jaded from that point of view. I just, I actually get more excited with each new conference that comes up. You, you can definitely get bored of, of hearing a certain kind of I don't know, it's like self-help talk or whatever. It's the same advice again. Yes, I grant you that that you can get jaded over, but in in the world of ideas more broadly, absolutely not. I think one of the things we like to persuade ourselves at TED, and it may or may not be true, but I think it is true, is that the media world that we usually live in is um overwhelmingly dominated by by politics. It's it's the theory seems to be that the world is shaped by by politicians, and so we get terribly worked up about their who's winning, who's losing, whose prospects are out there, and we and we fight with each other like crazy over it. At TED, I think we think that there's there's that, that may not actually be true, that the history is shaped more profoundly by other kinds of ideas, by inventors, by by scientists, by advocates, by people who will, you know, campaign to make change in different ways. You know, I look back as, as an exercise, I look back at um, a history site, at what, was, what were the big stories of 1989? And there, there was a ton of them. they were amazing stories. You know, It was the uh, the Berlin Wall came down. And um, I think it was the first liver transplant or something like that. There was a bunch of um, really big stories in the world. Um, but one story that wasn't on anyone's history list was that a little pattern of ideas started buzzing around in the head of a guy called Tim Berners-Lee, that became the World Wide Web. I mean, he published his paper about it, and it was completely underreported at the time. And uh, so many years later, here we are. You know, if you look for when the cell phones first burst on the scene, you have to look at page 27 of the New York Times at some point in the 1970s when everyone was talking about Richard Nixon. That was the big story of the day, what had happened to him. And yet, that little story on page 27 actually probably shaped far more millions of lives, you know, currently three or four billion than even Nixon. And so this, you know, this, this possibility that actually the world of ideas is more fertile and more consequential is, at the very least, it's a sort of um, gratifying antidote to some of the, you know, the angst that we go through. And it, it motivates me to say, like, right now, when we're all obsessed with Trump, will he, won't he, what will happen? You know, It's completely possible that far more consequential things are happening inside a lab somewhere, inside a company somewhere, the amazingness and the scariness and the hopefulness of artificial intelligence, for example. Like these stories may well be the actual stories that are driving the future. And we way, way, way underreport them, I think, in the general media. So, so part of what TED is supposed to be is not – it's not the day's news. It's the <laughs> – It's the year's news, like the real news that when we look back, that may be what actually had consequence. So this is one of my favorite um, topics, actually. Uh, I I read a lot of
2: 19th century American political history. And you just – I always note in that that you almost never read anything about taxes. Not never, not saying that no histories record anything about taxes, but you read a lot about electricity and railroads and so much of the story we end up telling. I mean, some of it is political, like the Civil War, but so much of the story we end up telling is technological. And so I'm curious what you think are the stories that early 21st century histories will eventually tell. What are what are the things that we are not paying as much attention to, but are either – ongoing or are upcoming that you think will be definitional in how this era is remembered in, say, 22
1: or 2300? Well, definitely one of them is is artificial intelligence. I mean, what, what's the, the potential of what we are building there is incredible um, and definitely has all kinds of ways that it could go horribly wrong. In fact, arguably, it already has gone horribly wrong. If you, if you think about um, Facebook's Algorithms as a form of of incredible artificial intelligence, which they are they 've helped discover things about human systems that no human ever knew, but through arguably mostly through unintended consequence, perhaps fueled also by Capitalist greed, who knows? Um, you know, they've gone wrong. There have been disastrous, unexpected consequences of these the, this artificial intelligence fueling human animosity. And so you know, multiply that forward a thousand times and and add on 20 years and uh you know who knows what the story will be in 20 years time as to what the the algorithms we're creating will do because the one thing we do know is that they will be astonishingly powerful and getting more more powerful by the day we should be really be paying attention to this parallel to that and probably equally as significant is the fact that humans for the first time in history you know have this ability to edit their own uh, genomes and um You know, there's discussion about it, but um, the potential there, you know, for I mean, we are who we are because of um, billions of years of evolution. We will soon be who we are because of actual intention. And instead of changing because like, you know, the, the drunk person bumping around while these evolutionary changes happen, and you end up nudging in a certain direction. No, it'll be specific intention. Do we want to bring children into the world who have violence in their genes. You know, we're pretty certain to eliminate some of the diseases, the genetic diseases that we can get rid of. But what else might we choose to get rid of? And is that a good thing or is that a terribly dangerous thing? These are really important debates and will undoubtedly shape the future, I think, more than any politics. I'm very uh, bought in on the idea that CRISPR and gene editing is possibly the
2: story of our age, that the only thing anybody will remember of this period is that it's a period when human beings... Took control of their own evolution. I'm curious if you if you are fundamentally optimistic or pessimistic about that. If you if you read these stories and you feel uh, more of a thrill of excitement about what we'll be able to do, or more fear about what we will do.
1: I'm definitely more fearful than I was ten years ago. You know the glorious story of the, how the internet was going to bring the world together has run into uh, some serious speed bumps. And, um, and that combined with just the possibility for AI to spin off in all kinds of different ways. Like when you, when you create something vastly intelligent that can read every book that's ever been written in a minute and can iterate and learn from itself. I mean, just you know, the power of what we are likely to be unleashing soon is terrifying I'm an optimist in the David Deutsch sense, I would say. David Deutsch defined an optimist as someone who believes that problems are there to be solved, you know, that unless it violates the laws of physics, (laughs) a solution to a problem can be found. And therefore, our job is just to find them. And I I think people are probably capable of, uh, if we pay enough attention to it, of preparing for this and getting ready for this and turning terrifying possibility into actually thrilling possibility. But it's, you know, we're, we're going to have to get on with it and do it and take it seriously. I mean, I, I think combining the feelings that the future is terrifying, the future is awesome. That is probably the healthy thing to do is to embrace both to be excited by it, but to be really concerned by it and, and to be motivated to seek to find ways to push the odds towards a, a better outcome.
2: I do think of Ted as interlaced with this period in uh, human history or just recent history, when we were extremely optimistic about technological progress when there when there was a feeling that maybe a lot of other things had failed, ranging from politics to to uh, different kinds of cultural questions, but that at the very least we were, we were creating these amazing technologies and ideas and concepts and research. And it feels to me, as somebody who covers this stuff journalistically, that progress has come to take on darker connotations recently. It's become more skepticism, which I think you were just alluding to, about whether or not we actually understand what we are unleashing when we unleash it. Do you think that there's been too much of a culture of believing that anything we are creating is going to be good for us and that we need to have a corrective on that? Or do you feel the corrective on that may be already going too far?
1: I do think that there's been a big problem and I don't think the corrective has yet gone too far. It might. I think it's, you know, many, many things, there are many stories to talk about here. One of the ones that um, frustrates me most is the unintended consequences of social media. And um, we've all seen the thrill and the power of sort of um, empowering hundreds of millions of people to be able to write short text messages to each other and whether it's on Twitter, Facebook or some other platform, and, um, you know, we learn a lot that way and, and it's it's a fun thing to do. You build up followers, look how exciting it is, feel all those dopamine, you know, hits. But um, turns out there are big issues. And I think the biggest single thing that's gone wrong is that, um, you know, companies have sought to maximize attention that they can drive and fuel. And the route to doing that is to engage a less than wonderful part of, of human psychology. So under the sort of banner label of user choice, we are here to celebrate and amplify user choice. People have amplified what are essentially clickbaity, shallow, obnoxious, outrage producing <laughs> pieces of communication, because it turns out that humans respond more to strong opinion, to criticism, to almost sort of People who think like me, but who can say what I feel in a more provocative way—that's who we gravitate towards, and that has had this this terrible consequence of you know causing us to push each other apart and to create these online worlds that are optimized, I would say, for our for our lizard brains. Now, can that be corrected? I think it can by paying attention to a more sophisticated view of what human nature actually is and designing for our reflective minds a little more giving our reflective minds a chance i don't believe that humans are bad or good i think everyone is capable of both and i think i don't believe humans are lizards or angels but they're actually capable of being both and and which parts of us are activated depends crucially on, you know, what, what we do to each other. <laughs> and so we need, to, we need to pay attention to that. And happily, I mean, there is a huge effort going on in Silicon Valley right now to try to do a better job of this. And I've seen lots of evidence that progress is being made. I think the, the very worst things that happened at the last election, for example, or, and that have happened over the last few years on social media, there are many, many people of great brain and great intent seeking to solve this. And I think we, we probably can, but there is a long way to go. And, and there may be fundamental problems in the business model that restrict how far and how fast we can fix this.
2: This is actually, I think, a, an interesting tie into our earlier conversation about religion. Um, I, I think about social systems, be those social systems technological or economic, like capitalism or political. Often, as being fundamentally about whether or not they are accelerants of natural human instincts or whether they are... They, they push back on our natural instincts. And I think capitalism, for instance, is the, – the reason it works is it works with a lot of things that are very deep in our psychology, the desire for status, the desire to get ahead, the constant dissatisfaction, the wanting more of being human. I think capitalism is very well aligned with how we've evolved and, you know, and that's why it's been a very successful economic system. But I think you get too many of those on top of each other and you just like have us on too greased of a – skid with our with our instincts and, and things get a little bit bad. You see this with drugs, obviously, um, you know, internet addiction. You can, you can go in a lot of directions with it. And it does seem to me to be that a role a lot of religions played was that they were skeptical of human instinct. Um, a lot of religions mm-hmm. have fundamentally an idea that, you know, we're born in sin or that the root of, you know, the fundamental truth of being a human being is suffering and that, you know, they're about laws or about regulations or about introducing friction into our lives or about often telling us not to do things we want to do. Now, some of those things now look ridiculous to us, but some of them were more profound and I think had more wisdom in them. And when I worry about religion going away, I actually worry a little less sometimes about the question of of meaning or, or tribalism because I think that that was often a more mixed bag if you take everything on net. But I do worry a lot about The kind of inability we have now to like say like maybe we're not great maybe none of our (laughs) intuitions are great maybe maybe we should have cultural systems and and ideological systems that are about
1: stopping us from doing things not just um, helping us do things i think that is exactly right honestly like i i think um you know the, the world i grew up with which was Every every day was a battle between God and the devil. You know, the devil was in your head, God was in your head, and you know, could you could you resist temptation? That was definitely a stressful way to grow up. But it but it, there there was a discipline and a fight and a determination that came from viewing the world that way that actually mattered. I think we convinced ourselves, perhaps in the sixties and seventies, you know, that um, we could throw off a bunch of stuff. And that the right view of the world it was this sort of hippy dippy beautiful world that. Humans were pure and people were deeply good. And that was really the only story we're telling that people were born as this sort of blank slate. And so long as we didn't put any pain or problems in their way, they would grow up to be beautiful, sparkly things who, you know, who could just follow their passions and the world would be wonderful. And I think that, you know, I definitely agree that the idea of the blank slate is a, is a terrible mistake. And it's some version of, you don't have to say that people were born in sin, but you can say that people are born with both good and bad tendencies in them and that it is a huge question as to which of those get sparked and in in what circumstances and that, you know, our social responsibility to each other is to do all we can to to figure out what is going on in those heads of ours and how we nurture our better selves and, um, you know, and, and avoid sparking our worse selves and we've 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 done a terrible job of that and yes re, re, part of the, the amazingness of of religion is that it did allow millions of people to break out of their little villages of 150 people and collaborate in the um, millions and uh, believe the same things by virtue of these sort of shared stories and um, some version of that I think we do still need, and at the very least, what we need is when we develop vast technological systems, we need um, a realistic view of human nature. That it is not just one thing to say we're doing this because it, we're amplifying human choice. I don't know what my choices are. I'm I'm a very complicated person. I've got a hundred people living in me, some some of which, some of the whom I don't like very much. And I, you know, putting putting a damn clickbait headline in front of me and then deciding that. I will be defined by the choice that my twitchy click finger made in that moment. That's not the world I want. That's not the technology I want. You can do better, Silicon Valley. And I I just, I think, you know, lots of fields of human knowledge have undergone revolution. Economics no longer believes that rational agent theory. There's behavioral economics is a much more nuanced and important way. That revolution has not spread widely enough into things like media, democracy, technology development. There's just, we need a much richer view of human nature at the heart of how we plan and design things for us, or we will hack ourselves into a very bad state. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast.
2: we got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work Something that's of like, great concern to me on this show, something I think that is important to, to you all at TED, is what part of ourselves we call up when we are in conversation or listening to a conversation. Mm-hmm. I think we have this idea that it's all about the quality of the ideas, that if we're, you know, if we're just there and somebody's making a good point, well, of course we're going to listen to that good point. But But to your point about, or to your insight, that we all have hundreds of people inside us at any given moment, and depending on which one of them is in the driver's seat or which group of them are in the driver's seat, we could show up in any number of ways. I think there's such a question now when we're on social media, when we're tuning into a podcast, when we're just talking to somebody about are we setting the stage for ourselves to listen? Are we setting the stage to learn or to communicate in a healthy way? And I'm curious how you think about doing that at TED. I'm mm-hmm. I'm curious how you think about not crafting the talk itself, but crafting the context
1: in which the talk is received. Right, so this is the number one thing that we're worrying about, or I'm at the moment, you know, in theory, (laughs) ideas are these beautiful things that are the ownership of every human being. It is a complete miracle that an idea that is invented in one mind can spread to others. And the other minds that it spreads to, in principle, can be in people of a different color, a different religion, a different race, a different part of the world, rich or poor, you know, ideas belong to everyone at a very deep level. And yet, today, we're in danger of them not doing that because we are shutting down channels of communication with each other. For an idea to spread, for it it to move from one mind to another, there has to be an openness in the receiving mind – And, you know, when you think about it, we've we've evolved with this wonderful ability to be skeptical. It's an incredibly important ability. Uh, You walk around in the world and you're constantly getting input from signals from other people. People will say things. You'll have advertisements thrown at you. You have to be skeptical. If you responded positively to every incoming signal, you would very soon, you know, have no money and no control of your life at all. And so it's incredibly important to be skeptical. But... To actually learn something, you have to be open. And the decision as to whether that steel door of skepticism slams down or opens up is therefore of huge consequence. What's happening in the current environment where these little weaponized text messages that we send each other on Twitter and Facebook and so forth, coupled with, with, um, A partisan media environment offline and, um, probably lots of other things. But we are tribalizing each other. We are simplifying the question about skepticism into a very simple one. Is this person on my side? It's becoming easier and easier to predict from knowing one thing about someone, possibly even just how they look, what they believe about a bunch of other things. And if we think, no, that's not me, then the, the door slams down, and um, no matter how, no matter what the person says, probably nothing will be learned or communicated, and that is an absolute crying tragedy, and you know, civilizational threatening. If that were to continue, that is humans throwing away their single biggest superpower, the single biggest miracle that has allowed us to get to where we are, which is this sharing of of knowledge. We are throwing away because we are losing trust in each other. So how you get around that is incredibly important. And you're right that it's no longer enough to put a speaker on a stage and say, we think this is a powerful idea, go away. Because if they look a certain way or, say, give off certain signals that position them as being in one tribe or another, people who aren't in that tribe will will not pay them the time of day. They'll roll their eyes, feel disgust maybe, and... um, be looking for the most acerbic comeback that they can on on whatever the person's saying. So the thing I, that, that
2: makes me think about a bit is we've always had that, right? I mean, there's nothing that goes longer in psychology um, or, or even in philosophy than the idea that if we start in a discussion or start in a space of disagreement, we are not going to hear anything. It's why I'm often very skeptical. I just had this conversation on the podcast with Hassan Minhaj, actually, about debates, because I think debates are often public performances where your side wants you to win and the other side wants you to lose, but nobody's open to learning anything no matter what. So sometimes they're fun, but that's what they are. They're a kind of performance. The thing that I've been thinking about a lot is the way that as our communication platforms... Narrow the amount of context people have about a discussion that those early signals those very crude signals become more important mm. so you know if you're if we're sitting here and we're in a community of one hundred fifty people and we're facing each other I mean the amount of of information that is encoded around that discussion is so tremendous, right? Like who we are, who we're from, what our place is, the micro expressions happening on our face, the way in which I'm, you know, stopping and starting and like being able to respond to you. And then you bring this down level after level after level. So now, you know, we're tweeting at each other and nobody's using their real name, you know, on and on and on down the line. And it feels to me that we put so much energy into the content of our arguments and we put so much energy into the content, even of our tweets, but we don't put that much energy into the context of them. Mm. We don't, and I'm not even sure we, we, we know how or that I know how. You know, Vox, it has a logo that's got a yellow logo, right? And some people see it and they're like, great, Vox, like those folks are going to give me the true story. And some people seem like Vox, fuck them. Mm. And, you know, and the same is true for me. Like some people see my name and, and they trust me and some people see it and they don't. And it, it really seems to me to be one of the the, the central challenges of knowing that we 're like this like how can how can somebody as a speaker or a writer or whatever? how can they break out of it how can they add context back in mm. so that people are working off of more information than just like the crudest simplest signals that are encoded in just like the knowledge that that person who you don't really know and you don't have any any personal
1: context for is the one speaking or conveying information yeah so it's 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 a hugely important question i think it you know it starts by making a human connection it's like don't start with you in some form that can easily be categorized, start by trying to find common values, common ground with who your audience is. You know, there was a memorable talk by Brian Stevenson, who's who's, uh, an African American public defense lawyer, who wanted to talk about the shocking injustices in America's criminal justice system and you know, he could have come in and said, I just, I want to tell you how horrifying it is that 16 year old boys are being locked up with adults in jails and suffering unbelievably. And speaking to a largely white audience, as he was at the time, he would have had some people, but others would have just, oh, oh this is too much for me to listen to. He didn't start that way. He started by saying, hi, um, let me tell you a story about my, my grandmother. And he told this delightful, engaging, endearing story about him as a kid with his grandmother. It was probably a quarter of his talk at least. And it was funny and endearing. At the end of it, everyone in that room felt, wow, this is someone who I like so much and who I feel kinship with. I can't um, pigeonhole in any way. And so when he then turned to sort of say, so look, we, we need to talk about an injustice together people went with him every step of the way. And he he ended that talk uh, with with the longest standing ovation of Ted's history. And some version of that, I think, has to happen in almost any, any setting. It's what happens all too often is that people find it much easier to wolf whistle to their own people, and, you know, if you want, if you want instant applause and laughter and so forth, you give the language and the code language that will get your tribe excited and on side and cheering you on. But that doesn't persuade, that does not persuade anyone else. It doesn't bring anyone else to the party. And if you want to make change, ultimately that, that is what you have to do. So, so yeah, I think finding, you know, the truth is that even though we've done this amazing job of, of, categorizing each other into these sort of ever narrower tribes where, you know, I know that because you are against climate change, I know where you are on the political scale. And therefore, I'm going to think these other nasty things about you or vice versa. There are so many things that every human shares in common. You know, we all... Prefer to avoid pain. We all prefer to avoid other people suffer pain. We don't like injustice. We don't like it when things are unfair. We all laugh. We love to laugh together. Humor is an incredibly connecting force. If you can start with just things that say, I am not someone who's puffed up. I'm I'm just someone who wants to make a connection with you. I've got something I want to share with you, and I think it matters. And I want to, if you'll give me a chance, I'll I'll explain to you why I think it matters then you have a chance of, of going on. And I think what so often happens is that conversations now become generalized. People don't take the time to say, I just want to recognize here that that there are lots of exceptions to what I'm saying or that it may be hard for a lot of people, given where they've come from, to pay any attention to this. But here's why it's worth doing that. I think, we yes, we we need to spend less time on the actual idea and more time on the gently nurturing of people with us on a journey. You know, a piece of communication is like a journey. You start where people are. You Otherwise, the journey can't happen. You start where they are, and you tell them where you want to go and why the journey is going to be great. And then you help them take every step of the way with you. Um, and that that way, people can move and something can happen. Do you feel some of this has happened to TED itself? That, you know,
2: TED is a globally recognized brand. It has these very clear aesthetics, you know. It's like I can, even as I said, I can hear like the beginning of a TED Talk in my head. There's like a sound right when the video starts. (laughs) It's kind of red and black. You know, it's become a meme on the internet. Welcome to my TED Talk. (laughs) Do you think that TED developing into such a strong brand has created a, a... a kind of set of context around it that some people love, but have also made it into something people are like. Oh, well, I know what that's going to be, and and has closed them down to it in a way that wasn't true, say, ten years ago.
1: Yeah, I think it's good and bad. I mean, the good is that you have this situation where you know there are thousands of talks online that are, by most measures, effective. I mean, millions of people have viewed them, and anyone can look at them and can say. Okay, that's cool. I could, I could learn from that. It's, you know, wow, that was, that was compressed, eloquent way of putting something. And, and so people learn from each other as they do in, in any other form that, that you can see online from cake baking to <laughs> dancing or whatever. People, we learn from each other. So that is good and that, that drives the cycles of innovation. The trap is that people learn cliches from each other. And that um, things that worked once get amplified again and then again and again, and then they become kind of wearying and almost amplified. And that's something that has definitely happened on occasion with TED, and it's absolutely possible to take the piss out of, out of TED Talks as, 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 you know, the earnest speaker telling the emotional story and trying hard to get everyone to leap up and cheer. We hate that. And we are fighting hard to avoid that cliche and to sort of dis- dismantle them whenever we've seen them and to encourage speakers to find their own authentic ways of speaking. And the good news is that that is happening hugely. And every, every year, you know, there are just amazing new ways of giving a TED Talk that we see and get excited by. And that is what we want. So it's, I, I see the art of public speaking as this sort of... Um, living, breathing thing that is evolving in real time and that the most effective speakers will find a way. Yes, learn from other speakers, but, but do your own thing. You know, people ultimately want to, they want authentic communication from someone who just has something interesting to, to say and so it's a thing it's an issue and, um, um, and I, I guess I would say to someone who just you know you, you see a TED Talk and you think you know what it is when was the last time you really looked at one Like they are changing in real time and uh, n- not all of them are good but they are all short <laughs> and some of them genuinely are
2: amazing Do you think about that short question I mean something that I remember from early when I started seeing TED Talks around was that one of the innovations of the form was it was going to be short there was going to be this constraint and early on constraint creates creativity and then if it becomes popular enough and it's the same constraint for long enough then it becomes cliché I'm, I'm curious about how you think about that. I mean, at some point, does, like, the whole format of it need to change? Or, you know, I feel as sometimes at, at Vox where, you know, we we do explainers. And, you know, the, the explainers, I think, as we start them are, you know, the way we were doing them was quite different. And then I'll see them now replicated elsewhere online. And sometimes I think, oh, my God, like, is this just becoming cliche? And, like, how do we keep making it fresh? Like, how do you navigate that way in which the success of a format can also become um, – hampering of it, such that the audience begins to turn off to it.
1: Uh, I definitely think there's, there's risk of cliché in aspects of the form. So particular forms of language or turns of phrase, that those can absolutely become clichéd. That the fundamental thing of what's going on there, I don't think can be. It's too deep within us. I mean, fundamentally what you're talking about is one human standing in front of other humans um, and, and saying something that, that matters to them, that they're passionate about. That is a core part of who we are. It's something like that we evolved over hundreds of thousands of years, sitting around campfires and um, developing, honestly, human superpowers. Like the, the ability to tell a story that can inform and warn and excite people, that can allow 150 people around that campfire to come to share the same emotions together, the same excitement, and therefore to be motivated to act together. This is the most ancient and most powerful form of communication that there is, It has all the words of writing and a hundred other things besides, you know, the nuance of voice where people listening to this right now can tell whether they think I'm bullshitting or whether I mean what I'm saying right now. You make the judgment. You know, you can tell more clearly than if you just saw this written from me. And if you could see me and see what my eyes are doing and, you know, what my face is doing, what my body's – you'd have more tools to judge that. And so I think the core thing that I get excited about is that this ancient – means of communication that has really allowed humanity to break out and be this extraordinary species capable of cooperating, that skill is now able to scale to the world. You know, a speaker, instead of looking at 150 people around a campfire, can reach a million people around the world. That is remarkable, and I think ultimately quite hopeful because that form of communicating is fundamentally different than the weaponized little text message. There is more to it. People aren't capable of being as obnoxious to each other face-to-face as, by and large, <laughs> maybe on cable news, um, <laughs> as, um, as they can in writing. And, um, and so I, th- I think if there's a way for us to be more gentle with each other. Be to listen to each other, to learn from each other, to be inspired by each other. I think a lot of that will happen in spoken word. Obviously, not just on Ted, but on many different, like on podcasts. What you're doing right now, you, you and your podcast, you, you talk with people and explore issues with far more nuance than is possible in other forms online, on, on, you know, in written forms. And so, yes, I worry about the cliches, but we we spend a lot of time innovating and encouraging speakers to innovate and mostly we're just amazed at what they come up with
2: what are, what are some of the innovations in the last couple of years that you've been really shocked by that people maybe
1: didn't see you know there's lots of different forms I mean first of all just the whole form of, of, of spoken word in general um, that that is a really rich art form that can you know that takes the power of poetry blends it with the best of talk, and that that can really get inside people's heads in a way that I think we haven't adequately explored at TED. I think the, the mixing of um, talk with graphics is an underexplored possibility. Larry Lessig has, is famous for doing this. He gives talks that are accompanied by, you know, literally hundreds of slides that are just going to click, 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 where every word almost is illustrated And um, the power of logic that he gets from those visual images and the cleverness of them are massively amplifying. Jack Conte, the founder of Patreon, gave a wonderful talk that also did that, that just had this blitzkrieg of images going on behind him that made it just super compelling. I think in general, people's partly driven by uh, people's growing sophistication with, with visual media. I mean, I think... The pace at which people speak is is probably picking up. Um, that the, the sort of, um, classic oratory that proceeds at a hundred words a minute is not usually effective. Online people want, um, you know, ping, ping, ping. They want, they just want their information faster. And so, and some speakers are, you know, very good at that. But, you know, there's still huge power in, I think the main innovation, honestly, is not so much in the form as in what is being said. You know, when Monica Lewinsky came to TED and she had her talk on a sort of music stand in, in front of her, she didn't have any slides, she just spoke. But because she'd been thinking about something she wanted to say for probably 10 years and because she had the courage to, to say it in a way that uh, felt 100% authentic, you know, it completely resonated with the audience. And she turned what was for her uh, one of the more terrifying moments of her life into this, this triumphant talk. So I, I would say it's, it's more the innovation that matters most is what there is to be said. And you know, to the people right now who are out there in the world trying to figure out what contribution can I make to the future, what, what can I discover, what can I invent, what can I pursue and push, that is where the real innovation needs to happen. If you have something interesting to do, as a human being, you can come and share it with other human beings, and they will probably get excited.
2: And so that's probably a good, good place to, to ask what's the, a version of the question I used to, to close the podcast. I usually ask for book recommendations. But since you are the curator of TED, um, what are three talks that were not unbelievably huge hits, that were not you know the biggest TED Talks of all time, that have stayed with you, that, that, that you think people should
1: watch? Mm. So... Well, there's definitely an, a nerdy streak in me. And uh, one, of my, one of my favorite TED speakers of all time is uh, David Deutsch, the physicist. Um, he was, you know, I spoke with him on my podcast recently, the TED interview. His worldview, I find absolutely astonishing. He, his first TED talk was about the power of knowledge, that knowledge is something, is a real force in the universe. It's not just, you know, humans are not just a chemical scum, on a random planet, they are actually incubating something that has the potential to reshape the galaxy, literally, to re-engineer the galaxy. And the fa- even though that may never happen, the fact that it can happen means that knowledge really matters. So, I mean, I, I find him breathtaking. Another guest on the podcast, Dalia Mogahed, gave to me an amazing TED Talk, and it, it goes to some of the issues we've been speaking about. So, she's a Muslim scholar um she spoke a uh, year before last just just talking about what it 's like to be a Muslim in america, and um you know islamophobia is is out there arguably uh you know with with some justification I as mean, sam Harris would say there's there 's a lot of justification for it that you 've got a, a religion that some people seem to interpret to uh justify horrifying acts et cetera um, Dahlia spoke despite i mean she's she didn't look like most people in the audience. She's got brown skin. She wears a headscarf. But she spoke as a mother, as a citizen, as just this delightful person trying to live an ordinary life in the United States. And speaking about her dreams and her hopes and her fears and her beliefs and how how much her faith meant to her, that shared a version of Islam that I personally would love a lot of people in the world to see because I think it it humanizes it. It shows that there is a version of uh, Islam that, that you can love and that and that is actually encourages people to contribute to the world. So for anyone who's who's concerned about that, I, I think she, that is a talk absolutely worth watching. Dylan Merrin gave a great talk at the last TED on, you know, Having conversations with people who hate me, he's someone who probably, to people on the right, would look like you know exactly the kind of person you'd like to pour scorn at, as and have poured scorn on as a kind of snowflake. You know, he's he's a person of color, he's gay, he's been called everything under the sun. But um, he made this practice of, of then trying to reach out to people who sent him the worst messages and uh, you know have have a coffee with them and have a conversation with them and uh, recorded those conversations. And he gave just a delightful TED Talk that's funny and um, and bridging. You know, I'm really looking these days for talks that can bridge some of these identity lines that, that the world seems to be struggling to bridge. And and I thought he did a spectacular job of that. So I'll, I'll give those three. Chris Anderson, thank you very much. Ezra, thank you. Thank you to Chris for being here. Thank you to all of you for being
2: here. If you made it this far, um, give the podcast a rating in Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you're listening. It does help the show. Um, thank you my producer, Julian Weinberger, and my engineer, Griffin Tanner, to Topher Roof at UC Berkeley. The Ezra Clown Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back in a couple of days.